Welcome to the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor podcast, LaughBox. We have multiple hosts and multiple guests and multiple ways to think out of the box using humor. LaughBox is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. Join us for episode 86 with Jim Bob Williams, James Figgy Hardwick, Katie B, and special guest, clean comedian, Dickie Hardwick. In three, two, one. Hello, America. Actually, the whole wide world here. We're on the Laugh Box, the podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. I'm Jim Bob Williams. I'm Katie B. And I'm Figgy, just sitting in. And our special guest today is corporate comedian and a longtime champion of clean comedy, Dick Hardwick. Hello, everybody. Hi. It's a great pressure to be here so far. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's, it's, it's indeed my pleasure. One question we, we ask everybody, we're the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. We look at ways that people are using humor to solve problems. How do you use humor to solve problems? Take, for instance, uh, if I'm in line at a grocery store and I have a line, I'll try to make people happy by just turning around and saying to the checkout person, or uh, of course, you have to know your audience. So you look behind you and make sure these people would be um, able to understand a funny line. And if, uh, if I couldn't deliver something to make them laugh, at least I can make them smile. So there you go. And it, it brightens my day. I remember Figgy, dad said to me one morning, uh, he said, when you walk out the door, smile at that first person you meet because you might change their entire day. So there you go. Nice. Wow. That's, that's a beautiful what, philosophy. That's, that is Absolutely beautiful. And and let's uh, connect with the relationship going on here. You guys, Figgy and Dick, are brothers, correct? Yes, indeed. Um, um, I've got nine years on him. So you see these lines up here? Those are... Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I just turned 69. And um, so Figgy, are you 61 or 60? I'm just 60 now and I got a lot less hair than you do. How'd that <laughs> work out? <laughs> uh, <laughs> So who raised who exactly here? Biggie? Well, Dickie was the one, you know, he was there and gone by the time he was 18. So I got all of his crappy clothes and uh, I got away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. When, when Brother Steve, Danny and I took off, it was just you and Janet. And, uh, and so, yeah, you had uh, your own bedroom. I never had my own bedroom. I had slept in a bed with brother Steve and you and Danny were just a stone's throw away. And uh, you guys would snore in three-part harmony. And I would, first of all, steal Steve's pillow and throw it over and you guys to wake you up. And then I would throw mine over and then I'd have to get up and go get the pillows and come back and start all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I was the oldest of five. So brother Steve and brother Danny and I had been playing music uh, since we were a little, since we were, I started playing the drums when I was nine and picked up the guitar and uh so um you know figgy was nine years behind so he was barely out of grade school uh when we were taken off and going out on the road so i always felt sorry for fig because he never got a chance to to be in kind of like the older clique of guys where i was traveling around with guys that were at least two or three years older than me at the time so um so he kind of got 
Um, he kind of got left behind there, but uh, he certainly has made up for um, that in the times past with all of the, the stuff he's been doing and especially this organization that you brought him into. So congratulations, Mr. Fig. Thanks, ma'am. So what about this, this household with so much music and funny business going around in the house? Can you talk about your parents? Can you talk about that? Well, Figgy, you want to chime in there, buddy? Well, mom, she was definitely the, the most humorous. You know, she would just get so tickled, she'd start crying uh, at different things. And, and just, you know, there was always humor. There was always music. There, there was always something going on at our house. And sometimes it was legal and sometimes it was illegal. <laughs> it was all a good time. <laughs> has the statute of limitations passed on anything that's illegal? <laughs> You know, I, I think that you all have, have, have would agree that to get humor and, and to, to appreciate uh, a good laugh, you, you have to be pretty sharp. And mom was very sharp. She, she could see through everything. And uh, uh, just one of her favorite lines was, I've upped my standards, so up yours. Nice. And, you know, it's, it's, so that was her, you know, she's just very, very on top of everything. So I still use, um, and Figgy uh, uses one of mom's jokes in, in, uh, in our routines and the like. And um, so, you know, I'll continue to keep using them because they're, they're safe and they're good. So when did you know that comedy was going to be a career, not just a pastime? Uh, everything to me kind of came uh, as necessary. Uh, I, I loved playing the drums when I was a kid uh, because dad, our, our dad played uh, string bass in a little combo on the weekends called the John Wood Combo. And uh, they had a piano. John Wood played piano and he lived two doors down from us. They had five kids. So we kind of like were tied together family-wise that way. And uh, of course, dad uh, with five kids screaming and yelling at the house, he's trying to get out of the house on the weekend as well. Uh, so he would head to the VFW or the Legion or the Elks and uh, be playing a gig. Well, uh, that was pretty cool. Dad's famous he's a musician in town and when i would see their drummers drums i would just my eyes would light up and and uh, so i picked up the drums so i wanted to follow in in his footsteps i st started playing the drums in our little rock and roll bands our brother steve and i had a group called the uh, hannibal and the invaders that was our first <laughs> little rock and roll band and uh and, and in sixth and seventh grade in seventh grade uh, there's even pictures in a yearbook of, of me sitting there behind the drums. And I, I didn't like the dead air in between. We'd play a song and then the, then the guys would turn around and they would tune their guitars or they were posing or the whatever or talking to one another. And I, I well, the audience is looking at us so give us something. So I just started talking to the audience. It was, I had no idea what I was going to say, but I started saying, saying, just talking to the audience. And that kind of stuck with every group that I was in. I kind of became the spokesperson. So probably around, I was probably 18, 17, 18. Um, our dad never really came to any of our concerts uh, that we were doing playing rock and roll music uh, because he came from the 20s and 30s and 40s and his band played music from World War II. Well, when uh, my friend Robin Hopkins, who uh, passed last year, may he rest in, in peace, uh, picked up the banjo and we went to the Mardi Gras when I was 18 years old. Uh, our aunt and uncle lived down in Kenner. So she said, you're 18, the drinking age is 18. So you can come down to the Mardi Gras. And he took the banjo and I had a harmonica and we went down on Mer Bourbon Street 
and uh, stopped a crowd playing the Saints Go Marching in so so big that they had to break up uh, with horses, uh, guys on police on horseback. So we went, hey, there's something to this. And we had heard about Pete Fountain, the clarinet player who'd been on The Tonight Show many, many times um, and famous uh, clarinetist down in the French Quarter. He had his own nightclub on Bourbon Street. Robin, unbeknownst to me, went up and handed the guy a hundred bucks. That would have been like, what, $5,000 now? And he put us- A hundred bucks in the 70s? Yeah. Uh, he, he put us in the front row of Pete Fountain's nightclub. And when the curtain came up, Pete Fountain and his seven-piece Dixieland band brought the house down. And the drummer started playing off the drums onto the floor tom, onto the floor, and came around and was playing the drumsticks on the, the uh, drink glasses in the front. And a light bulb went off in my head. I said, I can do that. And that was my first um, motivation to not only take what I was talking in between the songs, but actually stand up and start trying to to uh, entertain the audience that way. So that uh, that led to, uh, we went back down to New Orleans the next year and uh, I just turned 19 and um, uh, we just banjo and drums, we, we landed a gig in the French Quarter. And once again, when you only have banjo and drums, you better start uh, coming up with something to say in between. And uh, I'll never forget Figgy, I don't know whether you know that I was I really, we went down there to fame, to find fame and fortune and our first deal was Friday, four hours, Friday night, Saturday, four hours, Sunday afternoon, four hours for $60 each and all the beer we could drink. <laughs> After the first weekend, the owner, his name was Jim Monaghan. He said, let me re redo my, my verbal contract with you guys, $60 a piece and we'll support your beer habit. I guess we drank almost a keg of beer. <laughs> <laughs> there we were off and running and uh, we ran into a, a trio that was playing at the end of Bourbon Street uh, at the Marriott called the Tin Rainbow Ragtimers. And the banjo player was pretty much the Buddy Rich of banjo at that time. He was uh, could play the tenor banjo, the plectrum banjo, the five string banjo. And um, uh, we became really close friends and his drummer and his band got us a gig out in Colonial Beach, Virginia at a dive that they had played the year before. So we took off, here we are, just banjo and drums, and now we've got our first professional gig outside of New Orleans, and actually for $150 a piece a week. And Figgy, I don't know whether I ever told you, but mom said, Dickie, you're bringing home more than your dad. So that goes oh, to show you wow. how, how little pay he was getting for, you know, he was in the beer business there. So, you know, maybe he got paid in beer too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did. Uh, so it's genius um, that you're the drummer in the act because you yeah. can do your own rim shots. You know? Well, I could do my own rim shots. I have done that in the past. Matter of fact, I wish I had a drum set right now. <laughs> uh, we, we ran into an old friend that um, my friend Doug Maddox, the banjo player, um, his, his uh, piano player was tragically killed in a fire and uh, he was released to, to do whatever he wanted to do. I had gotten an audition for our little trio. And uh, and this this guy was totally smashed, came in one night, we were playing in a, a Shakey's Pizza Parlor down in Southampton, Virginia. And and this guy was just got up and sat right in front of us. He said, you guys should be on the Delta Queen steamboat. And I said, well, what is that? He said, it's an old uh, passenger overnight steamboat that flows up and down the Mississippi and the Ohio River. And you guys should be on that. I said, well, uh, give me a number. See, next night he came in, he was just as hammered handed me a number and I called and it was, it was Betty Blake, the president of the, of the Delta Queen Steamboat Company. She said, uh, we're looking for 
you guys to come in and audition uh, in Cincinnati in two weeks. Well, we packed up and took off to Cincinnati, not knowing what was going to happen. We went on, we played about three or four songs. She said, you're on, your audition will be all the way to New Orleans and all the way back to Cincinnati. We're going to be professional musicians on the Delta Queen. And on the way back up the river, uh, I came up on the levee and uh, the first mate at that time, Gabriel Chingari, who finally became the, the youngest captain on the Mississippi, said, uh, Dickie, the captain said he wants you to call Betty Blake in Cincinnati. And I went, oh my God, that means we're going to be fired. And I called up Betty Blake and she said, the band leader just walked off. You're now the band leader and you have to play the calliope on the way out of Memphis. <laughs> did I ever play the calliope, Figgy? No, did you Ooh. ever see me play the calliope? So um, I went up and kind of courted around and uh, on the calliope. And, uh, so uh, a lady came around the corner. She said, I can't wait for calliope fun time when I get to play the calliope. I said, would you like to play it right now? She went, could I? <laughs> Once again, the heavens opened up. And uh, you know, the, the, uh, the angels are walking all, all around us. They're all around us. My banjo player friend, Robin, uh, decided he needed to take a couple months to, to go back and rehearse, which I couldn't afford to do that. And the Delta Queen had offered me uh, an opportunity to come back on and be the interlocutor, master of ceremonies uh, on the Delta Queen, playing the drums and basically being the MC. So uh, there was a guy by the name of Vic Tooker, who was the, uh, the most, uh, outrageously great uh, riverboat guy, um, full of shtick. And, uh, and I was able to get on his coattails and learn a lot of his shtick. Figure, you know, the, the night before Christmas backwards and uh, the Tasmanian Garachi phone. And um, he will always say, tell the people what they want to hear. I said, well, that's not, that's not true. He goes, you didn't hear what I said. Tell the people what they want to hear. Tell them how great this person is or what they've done. They've been on movies. They've been in television. They've got Grammy, tell them that they, you know, this is going to be something great. So I always uh, kept that in my hip pocket and uh, would talk uh, in between the songs and introduce. Uh, so that was kind of where I started really doing, doing jokes um, to the audience, you know, limited shtick. So you see, it, it wasn't I didn't wake up one day and said, oh, I'm going to be a comic. It's just I had to kind of learn, learn it while I was going along. And fortunately, I was making them, uh, you know, a living doing it. I had my guitar on board the Delta Queen, and it was owned at that time by a gentleman named Studman Hinckley. He's a very wealthy businessman in New York City. He owned Overseas National Airlines, which was a charter airline service over in Europe that would pretty much make their money from flying Muslims down to Mecca. And um, so he would offer anybody that was a, an employee on the Delta Queen a free trip anywhere in the world as long as it was on standby. So um, I went, wow, I, I would love to do that. I was going to go back on the Delta Queen as the, the band leader and the, the interlocutor. And I decided to go to England. Well, one night uh, while we were playing at Joe's Bar, this guy with hair right down to his waist, and this would have been 1975 or 6, 75. And for a guy to have hair that goes all the way down to his waist, he must have started growing his hair when he was, you know, in high school. So it was really cool. That was a cool thing, a guy that had hair that long. Come to find out he was the production manager of Earth, Wind & Fire. They were in a, wow. uh, a big concert there in Cincinnati. And uh, he just came in to, you know, after the gig. And of course, we're playing Dixieland music, uh, just a banjo, drums, and a guitar player. And uh, we sat down and started chatting and had a couple cocktails and stuff. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to go over to England here uh, next week. He said, really, I'm, we're going to be touring with uh, Santana. You want to come and hang out with the band in England? <laughs> Yes, 
Yes. So, uh, <laughs> I, I fly all the way over to England. I had never been out of the country. I didn't know uh, my rear end from a hole in the ground. And uh, so, but I, there I was hanging out with Earth, Wind and Fire and Santana, pretty much hanging out with the road crew. I, I really got to be in the presence of Carlos Santana privately only once, but I met Billy Graham, the great uh, producer of all uh, Fillmore East, Fillmore West. Yeah. He was upstairs in the green room. I got a chance to meet him. So I'm thinking, wow, I'm going, my, my life is set. I'm on my way back to the Delta Queen. I've got a job being an entertainer. And uh, so life is good. So I spent the rest of the year, um, uh, that year uh, on the Delta Queen. And my buddy, my buddy, Doug Maddox, the banjo player called me and said that he wanted to form a trio with me. So I brought him on board the Delta Queen uh, for free. I said, I can't pay you, uh, but you can come on for free. And um, I'll, I'll pay for your bar bill. Well, the first week, his bar bill at half price was $150. That's just what I made in one week. So, but he was worth it. So we, we formed our own little trio. Uh, we called the Tin Rainbow Ragtimers. And we headed to St. Louis in 1976. And we spent about nine months there. And that's where we put together a real ragtime show where each one of us would do a solo spotlight. And that was the first time I stepped out in front of the drums and did a whole 20 minutes of, uh, of shtick. I did about a long drum solo and I would go out into the audience and play on the on the glasses like I'd learned back from Pete Fountain's thing. And I would get up on the bar, I'd walk down the bar, start tapping on glasses and I would find a glass that was almost full of somebody's cocktail and I would pick it up and I would tap it and I would say, do you hear that tone? Do you hear that little tone? Well, that tone is there because the, the, the volume of liquid in it makes it that pitch. So let's see. Mm -hmm. And then I would drink some of it. I go, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. see it went, see it went up. And let me see. I'm going to go. Can it go higher? And I'm taking, see it's going. To, and then I go, mm -hmm, and I would drink the whole glass. And I'd say, oh, I drank out of notes. Oh, Get this guy a drink and put it on that guy's tap. And then I would come back on the drum. And I would go up and I would tell a story on the Delta Queen. Studman Hinckley. He owned the Delta Queen. Studman Hinckley had come in with some of his friends and. Uh, He's, I was sitting on the stage talking to them, just, you know, schmoozing them up and then, well, how you doing and whatever. And he said, uh, uh, I, I see that guitar back there. You want to sing us a little song? I said, well, sure. So I pulled out the guitar and I sang, oh, daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County and by the Green River where you paradise lays. I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold trains have hauled it away. And I ended the song. I was very happy. I was trying to be as cool as Bob Dylan was. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> And Mr. Hinckley said, I'd like to introduce you to some of my friends. This is Mr. and Mrs. Peabody. Oh, oh. 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 hi, hi. And Mrs. Peabody said, that's really cool. I didn't know somebody wrote a song about us. <laughs> so our next question is, do you think you have a particular style? I wish that I had a style like uh, <laughs> something you could hook on, like uh, Rodney Dangerfield, Don't Get No Respect, or Joan Rivers, Can We Talk, uh, Roseanne Barr, anything <laughs> about a housewife, uh, uh, my friends uh, William and Reed, the Indian and the white guy, they can get away with anything politically incorrect because the Indian can say, and then the white guy can respond, and they're brilliant with their comedy. So I suppose, uh, just like Figgy, I always go back to my roots, being from Greencastle, Indiana, the land of opportunity, if you're a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
and uh, so that's my that's my safe zone. But uh, you know, to come up with uh, um, uh, straight stand-up, I was never a monologist, meaning I come out mm -hmm. like on Tonight Show and plant my feet and deliver five minutes. Even though I did just do five minutes on the Huckabee TV show, which is on my website, if you want to check that out, uh, it was a solid five minutes, and I was pretty pretty proud that I was able to hit it right on the money. And that funny, I was more concerned about the time I was doing rather yeah. than response but uh so i interspersed my act with uh, musical stuff and i lead in or lead out um with uh, something that would be entertaining uh be it playing the bones playing the jaw harp playing the guitar playing the washboard playing the drums playing my hands <laughs> oh yeah i got that one and uh, uh you know a little ham bone here uh, a little, a little, uh, you know, tap dance and a little, whatever it takes to, to fill that time. Uh, when I'd work on the cruise ships, they, they want two 45 minute shows, two different 45 minute shows. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot of material. Yes, so, uh, you know, I really stretch out on the musical stuff. So some would say that's cheating. Uh, I just say that's I'm, I'm getting paid to, to deliver laughs and entertainment. So I step out there and give them, give them uh, everything that I got. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That's not cheating. Music, the fact that both of you are so musical is is amazing. Yeah. And that off the top of your heads and, and Figgy turns into Louis Armstrong and the drop of a hat. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> My brother's Figgy. Well, Dickie, you, you taught me a long time ago, you know, whenever I was learning how to do balloon animals or whatever, you said that's just another trick in your yeah. trick bag. Just yeah. keep all this stuff and you'll be able to pull it out whenever you need it. And boy, it sure has worked for me. And I appreciate that, uh, that information. There. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, Katie, isn't that a principle of clowning? Like never be boring. Just keep doing something. And if what you're doing isn't working, you move to something else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's my principle. I got a chance to play for three months, two shows a night, six nights a week, drums with Jerry Van Dyke in his nightclub act. Whoa, okay. Wow. We were at Lake Tahoe and Reno um, at, in the lounge. And um, there was a, 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 that was like a master's uh, course in, in comedy because he had to go out there and do 45 minutes, no matter whether it's three drunk Marines in the audience or whether it's a full house. And, yeah. and I got a chance to, to um, really watch a true professional work. And he, as well as Bob Newhart had a, I think it's just the way that they are, but they, it's, uh, Tommy Smothers is the same way too. He's, he's, a, he's a friend of mine, he and Dickie. Uh, and Tommy just, you know, he just kind of talked, because when, when you're talking to Tommy and you're just, he just, he just kind of keeps, he'll just keep, kind of stammers, kind of, it's, and, 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 and he truly, Tommy, if he's, if he's, when he gets stuck, he's stuck. He's going, uh, one, one time we were working, uh, we had, it, it, this is so crazy uh, to think, of, you know, I'm such big fans of the Smothers Brothers, and all of a sudden I end up opening for them out in uh, North Carolina in a theater that was built right next to a grade school. So it was uh, probably a, a performing arts theater that was built next to the grade school that they would use for whatever, and probably the surrounding schools would use it as well. But our dressing rooms were the, the kindergarten and first grade class rooms so the little mm -hmm. desks little chairs and stuff yeah. so you know the teacher's desk we could you know sit there at the teacher's desk and i mean those guys were in a room and i was in another room and um so it, here here they go from uh san francisco you know the uh, all the beautiful nightclubs and tv shows and stuff here we are stuck in a first grade 
uh, changing to go on. But I said to Tommy, I said, I said, Tommy, I've got a couple of bottles of wine up in the room afterwards if you're interested. And he said, thank God there's another alcoholic out here. <laughs> <laughs> but Tommy, he just kind of changed, he's kind of started to, and, and Jerry Van Dyke, he just kind of kept, he was stanched him, stand, he would keep the thought pattern going. He was, uh, he would say, he said, you know, as you say, I just, Jerry say, I just, I, just never, I, I, never, I don't have any timing, got no timing. I, I, he said, even when I was a little kid, I, my brother and I were sitting on the floor and my dad came in and said, one of you is going to be Dick. Which one of it is going to be? He said, my brother stood up first. See, I could have been Dick Van Dyke. I just wasn't quick enough. See, I just got no timing. I just got no. Oh, have you ever heard Bob Newhart's story about uh, uh, there was a director that I forget what movie it was, but it was trying to get him not to stammer. Did he do a routine on it? Yeah, it, it's uh, in his biography. This director oh. comes up and tells him he wants him to deliver the line without stammering. And he says, do you realize that this stammer got me a house in Beverly Hills? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And yeah. shut down the director and uh, let him continue on. Are you still in the uh, Guinness Book of World's Records, Dickie? The record fell. Uh, I'm not sure how many years ago, but I'm pretty sure for over 25 years I was in the Guinness Book of World Records because of the Golden Horseshoe Review at Disneyland. That was the show that I was the took Wally Volk's place as the, the comic in the, the show. That's where I met my sweet wife, Claudia. She was one of the can can dancers in the show. Aww. So, and what we, was your title in the Guinness uh, well, Book? I was, I was billed as myself, which would never happen now at Disney because they're so. Uh, you know, promote from within. But uh, my my eight by ten was outside on the billboard. There was an oil painting of me and Fulton Burley and Betty Taylor on the outside, and there were big posters hanging around in inside. Of, uh, I can't anyway. I've got some of those. I can send you some pictures. Whatever. I mean, they really promoted me big time. And uh, Michael Eisner had to be the guy that sanctioned me to be to take Wally Boke's place because it was a pretty. Um, uh, it was a high profile spot at Disneyland. I had my own dressing room with my name on the door mm -hmm. and it was kind of embarrassing. I had to leave my band that I was so, uh, it was like a band of brothers. It was uh, Doug Maddox was on the banjo. John Jorgensen was on guitar and soprano sax. Charlie Warren was on the bass saxophone and, and string bass. We played bluegrass in the morning and Dixieland in the afternoon. And so like overnight, uh, all of a sudden I went from a dressing room with 10 people in it over to my own dressing room with my name on it, the door. So fortunately, those guys are still my dear friends. They had, you know, firm you know, reason to, to just flush me down the. <laughs> if you're on a cruise ship and, and there's different, there's language barriers, you know, and, and uh, how, how do you go about, you know, getting laughs out of people that have no idea what the heck you're saying? Well, uh, you have to be visual. That's most of my act is very high energy. If you don't understand what I'm saying, at least you could enjoy, or hopefully you would enjoy, uh, me on stage. Uh, Doug Maddox, my best friend, uh, mentioned his name, the banjo player. He's a, he said, Dickie, you're the kind of guy that come out on stage, take a chair, sit down and sit there for half an hour and people would like you. And, <laughs> and I, another great friend of mine, uh, Chris Bliss, he's a juggler, uh, really sharp, uh, brilliant comedian and stuff. And uh, we would go do showcases together and he'd say, Dickie, you suck all the goodness out of the room. So, <laughs> and Doug Maddox tells a story about uh, one of his friends on, on a cruise ship, and he wasn't getting any laughs for 40 minutes, no 
laughs. And he came off the stage and Doug said, you were unbelievable. You didn't, you weren't getting laughs, but you weren't panicking. You weren't doing anything. He said, look at this. And the guy took off his, and he was soaked. And he said, all I was trying to do was make them like me. So the performance uh, for me, that, that is, uh, that's almost, you know, 80% uh, of, of the show. It's uh, as long as they're liking what you're doing uh, as Sheldon Keller, my great dear friend from uh, the great uh, comedy writer on the Sid Caesar hour and the like, he said, I, I can hear, I can hear smiles. Mm. I yeah. hear smiles. How much, how much have your audiences changed in, in the years and decades you've been doing this? It remains the same, yet yeah. um, uh, now you have people that, that are only listening to what they don't want to hear, mm -hmm. which is a real shame. Uh, the comedy clubs have kind of been, um, it, it, now it's almost, it's not the audience comes to see a show, it's the audience comes to battle, do battle with the comic. They want to uh, uh, heckle or whatever. And uh, fortunately, I've never been in too many of those situations where people want to battle with me, but um, uh, I just pretty much keep on going. Uh, so if people, the minute that you stop and, and uh, recognize somebody that says something, if, whether it's brilliant or stupid, uh, you turn the the show right over to that person. And uh, right. um, Jay Leno said, never venture into the audience unless you have all the answers. And that mm -hmm. sure uh, remains true for that. Uh, uh, at Disneyland, uh, if somebody, people would, they would want to talk to me because they'd say, remember we were here a year ago to this day, my son's birthday, you brought him up on stage and you tied, you did a magic trick with him and whatever, and you just stand there and listen and they keep going. And you know, my grandmom's here and my grandpa's here and, and you see, we got, uh, we got some grandkids back here. And you just let them keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. Finally, they stop, they run out of gas. And I go, anything else you want to share with us here today? And that would get a big <laughs> laugh and then I would go on. And if somebody's tried to get brutal with me or something, I'd, uh, I'd always say, no, look, I get, I get paid to be an idiot. You have no excuse. Now be quiet. <laughs> that would normally, that would normally work. One of the more embarrassing moments I've just remembered. I was, uh, we lived in Garden Grove, Claudia and I, and uh, the first show I think was at 1040 in the morning. So um, uh, I would, and I was working at, at, at the Rice's Brothers nightclub down in Fountain Valley. So, I, I mean, I was, if, if I wasn't at Disneyland, I was on my way to Hollywood, try to work at the improv or, whatever so uh, you know late night so anyway i was on my way to disneyland uh driving a little fast and i got pulled over and it was very scary because i was barely going to make the show anyway and now i've got to get a ticket so i went to traffic school and um and so a couple weeks later i'm on stage at disneyland and i would always ask is there anybody here from the midwest and this guy in the middle of the audience of course it's dark i can't see the, the face of the people i hear this I know you. And so I said, well, what, how do you think you know me? He goes, we were in traffic school last Saturday. <laughs> yeah, you're really funny. It's just like, oh, gosh, how embarrassing is that? You know, it just takes that, that, the third wall out of there. And oh, here's the real person, Dick Hardwick. He's, he's a violator. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever totally bombed? Oh, and when geez. it happens, how hard is it to recover? Uh, probably on on both hands, I can count the number of times that, that I've gone, uh, that it hasn't gone well. But uh, the main reason for those, it would be the logistics of the room. 
um, either in front of an audience that doesn't speak English or you're too far away from the audience. I did 23 state fairs with Reba McIntyre. Yay, but, but on the other side of a racetrack from the audience, you know, just me. And it was in, I would have to go out when the sun was right in the eyes of, of the audience and you couldn't see the video magnification screens on the other side. So it was out there all alone. All you have to do, you, you know, I just would go out there, I would plant my feet and I would say, this has worked a thousand times before, why shouldn't it work now? And you just try not to panic. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tough when, when you really, uh, you're not getting the audience because you're out there and you're, you're naked. I mean, you're not physically naked, but you're naked. Your whole self is to try to make people happy. And if they're not buying it or they're not, uh, it's, it's, it's sad. Sometimes um, I would do a stag cruise. Then you have to get, you have to pull those, uh, those one-liners out that uh, you would never, that would actually clear a state if they knew you had said that. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, you got to fight fire with fire in those situations. What's the difference between working with Reba McIntyre and working with KFC? Um, well, uh, when you're working with Reba, it's not your job to, to put, uh, people on seats there's a different way to say that but yeah. uh when you're working for kfc then uh it's really uh it's difficult in, a, in another manner because there is no reason for those people to be sitting in an audience watching you perform they did not come to see you they came to a meeting normally the ceo is beating them up about wanting more product more more money for the company and here's our entertainment department <laughs> one, one time i'm working in reno my friend bobby d who was a magician and a producer director uh in reno uh had me perform uh for uh it was the the international garage door manufacturers association well, <laughs> and you were the opening act <laughs> the stage was at about six feet high but in front of it was a dance floor. You could put probably 500 people on it. And then the audience was out and they were all like not facing the stage. They're, they're facing each other, which is, is yeah. bad enough to begin with. So the vice president of, of the company got up or the association and said, uh, well, um, as you all know, um, our president, John, last night during dinner had, had a tragic uh, a heart attack, and um, and uh, I'm sad to say that he he passed this afternoon, mm -hmm. and uh, his family and uh, are are with him at the hospital now, and we would just like uh, to have everybody have a moment of silence for our president. <laughs> and now here's our entertainment, Dick Hardwick. <laughs> So what do I do? I walk very slowly out on the stage. I'm walking out on the side. So the audience is over there. I'm walking, I'm walking. And there's, and I wait until it's absolutely silent. You can hear a pin drop because the audience is now going, oh God, what's he going to say? And I turned around and I went, can you get the audience down just a little bit more before I go on, please? And I, and I walked back off the stage, which got a big laugh. And so then I walked back out and I said, well, come on now, let's all have a good time. Uh, you know, this, this, it's time to have fun. Let's have a party. So I go on like that. 
at, at the Bohemian Grove, uh, Jimmy Buffett came on and uh, he was, he just tore it up. It was, uh, you know, probably 1700 guys around you know, and he just tore it up. And Jimmy Buffett, first time he came to the Grove, he just tore it up. And so as he's coming off the stage, the sire, Eric Boardman said, and now coming to the stage is a, a great bohemian. He has started his comedy career at Disneyland. Here's Dick Hardwick. And so people are still standing, applauding uh, Jimmy Buffett. They're applauding, they're going crazy, they're going crazy. And so once again, I remember that moment, I just walked out real slow until everybody got settled and it got absolutely quiet. And this is, this is one of those moments where these are your peers sitting out there and they, they're really going, oh, what's well, Hardwick going to do? How's he going to pull himself out of this following Jimmy Buffett? standing ovation and I waited until it got absolutely clear or quiet and I turned and I looked into the audience and I said I don't know how I'm going to save this show <laughs> <laughs> and it killed and as I came off the stage Jimmy Buffett was there with open arms to welcome me off the stage and give me a big hug so that was really cool anyway nice. so you see uh, you, you, sometimes you have to turn a negative into a positive in, in a situation like that. J Jerry Van Dyke would uh, just, this just popped in my mind, just something that it's your what ifs, what if this happens or whatever. Uh, when we were in uh, the lounge there, they made, uh, the, the bar was at the back. So they made drinks back there. And so uh, whenever they would turn on the blender, the blender and like that, he would stop because it was, it was so distracting that that was going on. So the blender, he'd be going, well, you know, and the blender would come on. Hing, hing. So he'd take the microphone, he'd go. <laughs> While the blender's going on. <laughs> and the blender's going on. And then, then they'd turn the blender on. Hing, 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 hing. And he'd go. Mm, this razor isn't worth a shit. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Is that not brilliant? <laughs> brilliant. That is magnificent. What advice would you give somebody starting out in comedy today? Get up on stage and do it. Um, you'll find it, you you'll find who you are on the stage, and uh, you know, start out with just a couple lines. If you have something that you can recite, uh, something that you learned verbatim, uh, uh, a poem, uh, a limerick, a limerick. There once was a man from Find who fell through an outhouse and died. The next week, his brother fell through another and now lay interred side by side. That is brilliant. I am a I'm a sanitary engineer with 35 years experience. First time I heard that joke and I can't believe it. <laughs> well, there you go. You got to save some of these. So, uh, you know, you don't put them out there for public display. So yes, those, those are the gems that you always, you know, you save back. But I, so uh, how am I doing Figgy? Doing great, man. So uh, who, do you, who do you look up to or who have you looked up to over the years of uh, your comedy? Um, well, um, um, of course, all the greats, George Carlin, um, who, who was uh, on a level of his own, uh, 
by himself as far as uh, he was brilliant. And um, he and all Richard Pryor's and the Eddie Murphy's and whatever, they, they decided to go uh, beyond uh, a normal person's ego, meaning not thinking that you're really cool, but how far will you go to get a laugh? Robin Williams, yeah. uh, one of my friends, uh, Howard Albrecht, who was a writer on the Mork and Mindy show, said that he would come in to, and he, before, he would do anything. He would get, he would take his pants down and get on the leather couch and go at the leather couch to get the laugh. That's how far he would go. Uh, you know, my, my ego uh, or my, uh, I've always, especially because of the, uh, the Disneyland hook, you just can't get out there and, you know, start off with, uh, you know, an F-bomb here, an F-bomb there. I, I never can use an F-bomb really on the stage unless you're in a, a situation where you have to. It's a stag thing. And, and you got plenty of those. I've heard you many a times off stage. Well, sure. You know, it, it, <laughs> they say, uh, <laughs> you got to have a little bit of everything to, to round out your life there as far as comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um I remember the first the first gig you set me up on. You had me go to Las Vegas and open for uh, was it Bobby Rydell? Bobby Rydell, yeah. that's right. I remembered that just Mr. the other day. Oh, Larry, oh, Larry. Yeah. Oh, and you told me go out there and do five minutes, and your material sucked. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much? How much time did you have to do? It was like five minutes. Oh, you only had to do five minutes. Well, yeah. yeah. Felt yeah. like two hours, but I completely bombed in front of, you know, what, seven, eight hundred people. But, uh, oh, well. Yeah, you got to get your first one in there. You, you still paid me. Um, I remember a, another time that uh, uh, sometimes the people in the audience uh, uh, will put uh, an ad or will, will, will scare the audience. The reason I bring this up at Disneyland one day uh, there was a convention at the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, it was a Catholic get together or whatever. All the Catholic right. priests and nuns and everybody came. It was, a, it was a religious retreat, and so the park was was full of priests and and uh, and nuns in their their normal wear, the white collars and the black suits and the women in the habits with the mm -hmm. things and everything. So I come out on the first show, and in the front row there are there was three tables across and you could seat six people. So there are six, uh, 12, uh, uh, maybe some whatever. So at least uh, almost 18 nuns sitting right in front. Yeah, you can imagine what the audience, because there's a balcony and everybody's looking down and there's at least three, 350 people in the room. And these nuns are just up front. And I get up, of course, I come into the show and I shoot off a gun a couple shots to, in the dark, which gets everybody's attention <laughs> to begin with. And when I finally get up onto the stage, um, I go into my routine and I look down and I see the nuns are there and I can tell that the audience is not reacting to anything I'm doing because the nuns, oh gosh, is he gonna offend the nuns? Oh. So what did I do? I stopped and I paused, that pregnant pause, which sucks everybody in. I looked down at the nuns and I said, so what do you girls do? You all shop at the same clothing store. That's for sure. And I went on. <laughs> but I took the pressure off of the audience because they, they, they were going to budge until I recognized that I know that there's nuns and they're in the audience and I'm not going to 
offend them. If people want to get in contact with you, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, uh, DickHardwick.com. That's www.dickhardwick.com. My, my manager lives down in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Steve Tolman. So if, uh, if his name comes up or whatever, uh, that's the reason for that. So your website is www.dickhardwick.com, yeah? Right, yeah. And your agent is, what's his name again? Well, it's, he's my manager. You know, your there's manager. a difference between a manager and an agent is only legally to give uh, 10%. But a manager can get all he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a great story about uh, uh, the colonel that managed yes. uh, uh, Elvis. Elvis Presley. Uh, he took 50% of Elvis's and they said, why, why would you take 50% of Elvis's money? He said, at best, he's going to leave me. <laughs> I'm not, uh, see? Well, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So he's, he's my manager. So he's not my agent, but what's, he what's his name? Acts as a manager, uh, agent, whatever, and, and uh, books, gigs and stuff like that. What's his name? Steve Tolman, T-O-L-M-A-N, Steve Tolman. He and I uh, first worked together at Walt Disney World uh, in Florida that, back in 1979 or 80. And he was the boy singer, or the male singer, the Irish tenor guy uh, at the Diamond Horseshoe at Disneyland. Matter of fact, on my website, there's a whole uh, video of me doing, that's the first time that I was out of the gate as a full-time comedian being paid at Disneyland. And, uh, and I look at that and I go, how in the world did I remember all those jokes and string those together? But I did. And youth is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so, uh, and that's how I know Steve. So we've, we've known each other since then. And uh, he, got, he was able to get me on several TV shows back the Sattler Brothers show and, and um, uh, Louise Mandrell telecast and stuff. So I said, why don't you just manage me? He said, okay. So, <laughs> What, what's some other TV that you've been on? Uh, you you did that uh, Star Search. Well, I, I was I was on Star Search. I was I was uh, I was on. I won, uh, and then uh, then the next show I lost. So I was a comedy champion for for one week. So I always say I'm a, I was a comedy champion on Star Search. And uh, but uh, that won uh, and won the Gong Show twice. Two, two times, yeah. I have two two wow. <laughs> Oh, well. You have to look real deep in my resume to find that one. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, our brother Denny, uh, he he had a couple of friends that were producers back in the day, and there was a a couple TV shows that we were able to go on. I think one was called uh, Leslie Uggams, and uh, yeah, remember that one? Uh, Make a dream come true, or something like that. Uh, but um, the Statler Brothers TV show, uh, uh, the um, the Huckabee TV show, I've been on that. Uh, on camera once I'd go down and do warm up every once in a while. It's kind of strange. They'll pay you uh, for coming down to do warm up, but they won't pay you for being on camera. So it's, they'll pay for your travel, but they won't travel. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and, uh, and uh, the, the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I've been on that several times. They haven't called for the last couple of years. I say, was it something I ate? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, and as far as TV shows, uh, uh, Disney did a, a whole thing on me called the Family Channel on the Family Channel, and that was about me taking the this, this show as the comic in the Golden Horseshoe. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, uh, movies that I've been in, uh, well, it's the first when I first came to California. Our brother Denny had already come out and had made some connections with Local Forty Seven, 
with the, uh, uh, they called a, a music steward. He would go out and cover, say, The Tonight Show and make sure that everybody was happy and that they were treating them and giving them their breaks and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, Jerry, I uh, can't remember his last name, but uh, he got us uh, on a gig to sideline. If you play a musical instrument in a movie, uh, you're not going to be playing it live because they, they, you know, they have to have it pre-recorded and then you act like you're playing. So they call that uh, uh, sidelining. So somehow he got us uh, on this movie called uh, uh, called The In-Laws with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. So this is yes. in 1977, I think it was, or 70, 1977 or 78. And uh, the last scene of this movie, do you remember, did you see The In-Laws? If, if you have seen the movie. It is absolutely hysterical. The movie is 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 worth it, and and you probably would not be able to see me or Danny. Danny was playing the clarinet down in the the last scene. The the Glendale Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Carmen Dragon, who is uh, just this marvelous looking, uh, uh, tawny skinned pouty nosed, silver hair conductor, uh, <laughs> doing the wedding march as uh, as. Uh, Alan Arkin and Peter Falk come in in a hot air balloon. And so they're dropping down into this wedding scene and everybody's, there's probably 300 people, extras and everything. So the symphony orchestra was like 90 pieces. So I got to play the cymbals in the back. So I got to act like I'm playing the cymbals. So here we are, there's probably 400 people on the set, you know, 300 people, the symphony, ever the camera's all set up, the director's up there. And so they're bringing them down uh, whatever, and so we're playing da 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 da. So the are looking at da da, and I'm good with the symbols da da, and not crashing da 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 da. And so I'm looking where the camera. I'm going, can the camera see me? Da 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 da. Where da 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 crash? I crashed the symbols, and the director goes cut. Oh God, I wanted to crawl under the timpani. So they had to reset everything, pull the cap, you know, the, the crane up, and pull everything. Because I crashed the cymbals, screwed <laughs> up the audio. So uh, that was the first movie I was in. The next movie, uh, Conrad Janis, uh, who was Mindy's father on the Mork and Mindy show. Yeah. Uh, if you go back and look at the TV, he also played the trombone, and his his love mm -hmm. was to play uh, Dixieland trombone, and I played drums for him. Uh, since 1977. So we buried him and his uh, beloved wife last, just about six, seven months ago, six or seven months ago. And uh, I played every Thursday with him and uh, he was a dear friend. Well, he, uh, on Mork and Mindy, the director of Mork and Mindy was Gary Marshall and Gary Marshall's daughter, Penny Marshall was on many TV shows. So um, Gary was going to direct Jackie Gleason's last motion picture with Tom Hanks, and the, the movie was called uh, Nothing in Common. Mm -hmm. And um, Jackie Gleason had a favorite Dixieland band, which was us, the Beverly Hills Unlisted Jazz Band. And so Conrad was able to get us into the movie, but we didn't get uh, screen credit. We only got credit for the Beverly Hills Unlisted Jazz Band as themselves, which meant I got $150 one day and $150 to the next day. Anyway. But the cool thing was, the uh, Jackie Gleason was going to be dancing out and around, and, and uh, there was a scene where he would found out that he uh, his leg because of diabetes started to have gangrene, and that was a very 
uh, intricate part of the movie at that moment. And so he's dancing around in front of us. At the premiere of, of the film, at the end of, of our thing on the movie, and we did record this music live, and then we, we played sync back to it playing in the movie. Uh, at the end of the Dixieland song, there's a four-bar tag, big, big ending. Um, so the uh, musical director, or the uh, editor, music editor came up to me. And he said, are you the drummer with Conrad? I said, yeah. He goes, I have to apologize. I said, apologize for what? Oh, did you cut me out? He said, no. I had to add two beats to the to your drum solo at the end of the thing to get Gleason around the desk so so that it would match up. So it's going to sound like you really screwed up your drum solo. And I went... <laughs> Uh, you're you're apologizing for adding. Normally they cut stuff out, <laughs> but sure enough, at the end when I cut it in half, I went and it really did sound like I screwed it up. But uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I've ever told anybody that story. So you're the first one to ever know that. Yeah. So Dicky, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today yeah well, this has I, been wonderful lots of fun lots of fun good to see my buddy <laughs> i got a feeling we've only covered to like 1992 there's a bunch of <laughs> bunch of stories still left there oh uh, there's there, there's so much to talk about uh, and uh, i'd be happy to you know talk again uh I, I don't know whether i can help anybody as you said what would you say to somebody that was going to go out and try to to do comedy um it, it's uh you just got to get up there and, and you got to go out there and do it. And you have to, you have to go out. It's easy to make your friends and family laugh, but, uh, but it, you try to make a total stranger laugh. And that's, I'm more afraid of friends and family, you know, trying to make Figgy laugh after he's heard every joke that I've done <laughs> told inside out. So to, to get him to laugh again, it's pretty tough to do, but um, you know, you get out in front of a, a stranger, you're the snake in the grass and you can go and bite him where I, I can't be the snake in the grass because Figgy knows me too well. And uh, so um, as far as getting up, uh, the audiences are, are so crazy now. It's been a long time since I've been in a comedy uh, club. Uh, and I'm not really sure what the temperature is in there now. But uh, um, uh, I'm glad I'm, I'm 69 and, and, you know, out in the field chewing on my cud now rather than trying to break in at the improv. It's uh, uh, I, I, I had actually had to go to, to therapy for about three years trying to figure out why I couldn't get I couldn't even get the commercial of the guy in a in a bananas suit. You know, I couldn't even get that. <laughs> but uh, you know, I wasn't. I only booked one other movie uh, that I had was speaking line in a movie called uh, Reckless Kelly. Uh, the comedian from Australia, Yahoo Serious, was uh, the director, producer, and actor. And uh, it's a really weird film. But my only line in the movie, I played the nice. See, I played the nice studio yeah. guard. See the nice studio guy, and when I went into the casting room where we were getting our costumes and stuff, and they had pictures of the guys that were supposed to be the villains, caterers, and whatever, and they had my picture up there, nice studio guard. And you looked at my picture and you went, "Look, they, they, I, I fit that perfectly." Anyway, my only line was, uh, "Reckless Kelly pulls up at the movie studio in his car with his buddy," and I looked out, and my only line was, "Good day, Mr. Kelly." That was it. <laughs> The morning of the shooting, I went up and walked for about an hour and practiced. Good day, Mr. Kelly. Good day, Mr. Kelly. Good day, Mr. Kelly. Good day, Mr. Kelly. I'm going to say this. Good day, Mr. Good day, Mr. Kelly. Good day, Mr. Kelly. And, <laughs> and that's it. So that was my big line, and I did get paid scale for that. So anyway.
That's good. <laughs> Thank you for all your advice and for <laughs> yeah, meeting with us. Advice, but, you uh, did. You sure did. Gave me a lot of stories. You mm -hmm. gave so many amazing stories. You are part of the generation of some of the beginnings of comedy through people like Robin Williams through today. And the times have changed a little bit and the audiences might be a little bit more challenging now. Um, I think I think that they're uh, yeah they're 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 uh, they're more informed and they're more uh, not necessarily radical but they're 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 more know what they want to hear yeah. and uh, um, so um, and and the availability of of so many everything is available on YouTube so uh, it, everything old is new again can't happen. Uh, as Jay Leno always said, never do your act on TV because then you have nothing to do in live performance. And he was so right. So uh, Steve Tolman, my manager, has used, uh, not used, but he's booked uh, Jay many, many times, pretty much word for word, the same act that he does in corporate. And um, so, you know, it's a really smart guy. A joke machine he was, or is. Do you have a last favorite quote that you could leave us with? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Always remember, air raid is diarrhea spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that, yeah. Yeah, am I released from sequestration? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that yeah. point right there because that's so amazing thank you for joining us for episode 86 with dickie hardwick and our hosts jim bob williams katie b and james biggie hardwick thank you very much this has been laugh box brought to you by the association of applied and therapeutic humor thank you so much for hanging out with us laugh box is a production of the association for applied and therapeutic humor visit us online at www.aath.org follow us on social media facebook twitter instagram or linkedin music by gary rubio for more information www.garyrubiomusic.com and we'll see you next time Thank you.